I was just checking where to end. So we're going to start in Ecclesiastes 5 at verse 8 and read till 6 and verse 9. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the, to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, we uh, are continuing our series that we've named Living Life Backwards, which is a study in the book of Ecclesiastes, and um, we've uh, kind of entitled that because the author um, of Ecclesiastes really wants us to look at uh, life and uh, lets us look at it through the life of, of um, the teacher, um, and uh, this person really kind of is, is meant to, or at least looks like uh, Solomon um, within that, one of the wisest uh, richest, most powerful uh, people to live, uh, certainly was at his time. Uh, up until that, God had given him a, a supernatural ability of wisdom um, to be able to discern things in life. And he kind of goes on this grand experiment to figure out what life is all about and what the meaning of life is. And he uses this refrain over and over again, this word that we've looked at multiple times called hevel, this Hebrew word, which kind of means uh, vanity or meaninglessness or... Um, uh, like vapor, uh, it, it's there, you can see it, but you can't really grasp hold of it in that way. Uses this phrase under the sun, really describing what our life is like um, from an earthly perspective, or what a life is like disconnected from God, and describes what life is like under the sun, um, and, and basically sums up that life as being one of a vapor, um, of, of hevel. And um, so this is what we're going to look at again, lessons from this old man looking back on life. And um, 
my worry this morning is that once we get into the meat of, of this, uh, the, we'll worry that this doesn't apply to us. Because we're a young church, um, most of you are still in your early parts of your career. Uh, we're not a, an overly wealthy church probably compared to some um, with, with uh, older people that have had long careers behind them and things like that. Um, but we're going to talk this morning about money and ambition and things like that. Uh, but like all of the scripture, uh, let me implore you to pay attention because there's always things in here for us to learn and, uh, uh, about. That slope on the floor, all that candy just rolling down there. Just life is hevel. It's there in your hands and then it just <laughs> rolls away from you. Good, good sermon illustration. Don't worry about it. And if you want to pick it up, feel free. You're not going to um, bother us at all. Um, let me ask you a question. Um, what is the ambition of your life? What's your life's ambition? What motivates you or what drives you um, uh, to get up in the morning uh, to go through life? Um, and I want you to think about that for a second. Um, probably a question that we don't maybe give enough attention to. Uh, we just kind of sometimes, instead of living life, life kind of lives us. Uh, but what is it that really drives you and even underneath those motivations, asking those questions like, a, like an onion, peeling the layer off. What is it about that that drives me? What is it about that? What is it about that that makes this the ambition of my life? And I think for a lot of people, um, we might actually get down to uh, our ambitions being driven by um, our comfort, our security, um, and affluence. Really the things that we feel like money or if we have enough affluence in our life, uh, that life would be good, right? Most of us want the good life. And, and, and most of us would know and understand that uh, money and affluence um, is a part of that good life, right? When you picture your life, your dream life, is, is, is that picture you living in squalor and abject poverty? No, no, it's not, right, for none of us. None of, none of us, uh, that's, that's the good life. We see a life of comfort, of ease, uh, where our desires are being met. Um, nothing inherently wrong with that, um, but it gets complicated, doesn't it? Um, I want to draw your attention to this painting. This is a famous uh, painting by a Renaissance painter called uh, Quentin um, Macy's. Uh, the lighting in here is not going to maybe uh, let us see it as clearly as I would hope. If you squint, you can see it a little bit better. Block out some of the light. This is a picture of, uh, this painting is called The Money Lender and His Wife. Uh, and if you look closely, uh, there's the money lender. He's sitting at a table. He's got some coins. There's a mirror. Uh, and he's examining this coin to make sure it's a coin of value. Um, he's paying attention to uh, the money that is here. And if you'll notice, his wife next to him um, is, uh, has a Bible, and she's trying to read her Bible, but where is her attention drawn to? Her attention is drawn to the coin that is in his hand. And Mazis painted this painting um, very carefully, um, and he wanted to make a point. At the time of the painting where he lived in Antwerp was the world's kind of center of business and trade, and he painted this picture as an illustration for how easily, how easily money can pull us away, can pull away our attention and our desire from God. And so my question this morning is, are you ambitious for affluence? Are you ambitious for affluence? Jessie O'Neill, um, in her book, The Golden Ghetto, describes this condition of being obsessed with affluence as affluenza, a play on words of influenza, right? Which is a virus uh, that we as humans can um, come in contact with, uh, that makes us feel very poorly, uh, feverish, um, ill health, and uh, is actually a deadly disease often. Um, hundreds of thousands of people die every year globally from influenza. And she uh, uses this play on words, this affluenza. It's like this universal, universal human condition that can lead to a decimating disease. It's the craving for more wealth than you have regardless of whether it's a little or a lot and whether you're rich or poor. Um, poor people can suffer from affluenza. 
Rich people can suffer from affluenza. This desire, this craving, this obsession, if you will, for more wealth than you have. Um, If you remember in the Canterbury Tales, there was this tale of these three men who were looking for death. They thought if they could find death, they could kill death and end death once and for all. And they come across this old man who says, I know where death is. It's at the bottom of this old oak tree. And sure enough, the men set out, and they go to this oak tree that the old, man, uh, the old man told them about. But when they get there, instead of finding death, they find three bushels of gold. Now with death out of their mind and greed squarely in the picture, um, they try to figure out how they can keep this gold. It was getting late at night, and so for security, they decided they would stay there with the gold. They would camp there overnight, and then in the morning, they would um, figure out how to get it all back to uh, their houses. The younger man goes off into the town to buy uh, food and drink for them. And while he's there, he buys food and drink and some wine and also some rat poison to poison the wine so that he can kill the other two men and have all the gold to himself. What he doesn't know is the other two men are doing the same thing, scheming of how they could get rid of him while he's gone plotting and planning his death when he comes back so that they would only have to split the gold two ways instead of three. And sure enough, that's what they do. When he comes back, they stab him to death, then raise their glass in victory, drinking the wine and drinking their own death. And just as the old man said, there under the tree, they found death. They died of a disease of affluenza, of wanting more than they could ever have. And this passage that we're going to look at this morning in Ecclesiastes is going to show us and break down really um, how deadly this disease can be. Um, we're looking at uh, 5, 8 through 6, 9. And in the Hebrew, there's this parallel structure. This is a literary device that they would use called parallelism to really draw our attention to the focal point of what they were trying to make. And so if you think of a bullseye, um, of, of like a dartboard with rings that work its way into the center. This is what we're going to look at today. The first uh, sections one and five uh, amplify each other. Then we'll look at sections two and four as we move towards the center. Those also parallel, paralleling and amplifying each other until we come to the bullseye right in the middle. And hopefully by the time we get to that, um, it'll be very clear uh, where the target is. And so let's look at, we'll actually start at the end. Um, and we'll start in, in chapter 6, verses 7 to 9, the, the uh, section 5. And this is the point that we're going to look at in, this, in these first two sections. Uh, my first point for us today is an obsession with money <coughs> cannot be satisfied. An obsession with money can never be satisfied. Um, so let's read these, uh, these verses here, 6, 7 to 9. For the toil of man is, his mouth, is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man um, have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity, it's hevel, and a striving after wind. I remember when I was a kid one year, uh, there was this particular uh, toy that I wanted. It was part of this like G.I. Joe set. Um, anyway, it was this like tank thing and it... it, uh, it uh, it was like a little remote control tank, essentially, right? And, uh, and I, got, I got it on Christmas, and I unpacked it, and you had to kind of put it together, and you put stickers on it, and you did all this kind of stuff, and then it was time to actually, like, play with it, and I couldn't um, because it needed batteries, and we didn't have those batteries, and the batteries were sold separately. And so in my disappointment, there I sat with this useless toy that couldn't be used, and this is exactly what the scripture here in, Ephesians, or in Ecclesiastes is telling us. Satisfaction is sold separately. That you can gain all that you want, and yet that appetite never gets filled. The satisfaction doesn't come with it. It comes separately. It's like a human appetite. It's like, our, it's like being hungry, right? You're hungry, you feed yourself, and you're satisfied. But then what happens? You get hungry again. 
You become dissatisfied. It's not enough to fill you. You actually have to eat again. And as you get older, you realize this is a cycle. You eat to gain strength. You have strength so that you can work. You work so that you can have money. And you have money so that you can eat. And why do you eat? So that you can have strength. So that you can work. So that you can get money. So that you can get food. So that you can eat. It's this endless cycle. It's never satisfying. Here he says that the poor acquire certain social skills to be able to navigate through life. They know how to act. But what advantage has the wise man over even this person? The wise person, whereas uh, they're wealthy, can buy social acceptability. And what advantage do they have? These social skills don't benefit them when it comes to satisfying their appetite. And the appetite he's referring to here isn't food. It's not, our, it's not an appetite of hunger. It's an appetite for money. It's an appetite for affluence. And he says the wise and the foolish, the rich or the poor, it doesn't matter. They're all unsatisfied. You think the wise, you think the wealthy, those that have, would be content that they would be satisfied that it would be the poor, it would be the foolish person who doesn't know how life works, that would be the one going uncontent. And yet he says, no, they're all the same. That's why when you see a new pair of shoes, you want the new pair of shoes, even though you might have a closet full of shoes. I just don't have that pair. Or you get into uh, someone else's car, and it's newer than yours, and all of a sudden you want a new car, even though your car has another 100,000 miles probably left on it. That's why we want a new phone when the new one comes out, even though our phone works fine until Apple slow it down and make it not work. Right? This is just this human condition. We all understand this. Um, archaeologists, do you remember Pompeii when uh, Vesuvius, uh, the volcano, erupted? Um, it erupted so suddenly, um, the population of Pompeii was so caught off guard uh, that they literally were buried in ash. And in that, were um, archaeologists then discovered their bodies were really preserved well. Even facial expressions and things were preserved. Um, and they came across this one particular woman um, that they found who her feet were pointing toward the city gates. She was running away. And yet they found her. She was looking back. And her arm was stretching out for something. And what was just beyond her gasp, her grasp, was a bag of pearls. And there she is preserved for all of us to learn the lesson. Grasping for something that in the, in the end, in, the, in that moment, didn't even matter. This is the lesson of Lot's wife, isn't it? Who, who has to look back who wants to look back to all that the city provided for her. And is frozen in time. Verse 9 describes our appetite as wandering. Our desire is like a vagabond. Always wandering, but never actually arriving anywhere. Always traveling, but with no destination. I have a, we have a friend like this. He's a musician. He actually, is, he actually put out an album called Vegabond because that's what he kind of is. He's just constantly, constantly traveling. I follow him on Instagram. He's in a new country, in a new city, always traveling but never arriving anywhere. And our appetites are kind of like this. And Solomon says that it's meaningless, that, that it's just hevel. It's just like chasing after the wind. It can never be caught. We have the delusion of an obsession that cannot be satisfied. Look at its parallel then in, in uh, chapter 5, verses 8 to 12. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and, yet, uh, and, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivating fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. 
This, he starts off saying, don't be surprised. Don't be amazed that the poor are oppressed. That there's a violation of justice and righteousness. We looked at this when we talked about justice and injustice a while ago. But here it ties in with money as well. Officials are watching each other's back. Why? Because they will gain. There's a sinful, systemic structures of society. There's a built-in inequality to the way our, our society works. And that might be a, a more corrupt, oppressive government like communism uh, who keeps everybody in poor, <laughs> in poverty. They own everything. It's supposed to kind of work where everybody kind of is equal, but everyone ends up equally poor. Overbearing taxes, seizing property, bribes, demanding special favors. But consumeristic capitalism isn't the answer either, either, is it? Then rich get rich, but the poor get poorer. Lobbyists, special interest groups are able to use their influence and use their money and line the, money, line the pockets of, of politicians to disregard the well-being of other people. Profit and greed drive the system there as well. And here he says the government looks out for itself. And he just says, listen, don't be naive. Don't be naive to think that there's a political system that's going to be perfect for everyone. But here's the flaw. There's a flaw that's built into it. There's a God-designed flaw for it. Because for all the wealth that they're able to acquire, even if that is through corruption or oppression, for all the, or whether that's done uh, through, through legal means, for all the wealth they acquire, there's a corresponding lack of dissatisfaction. A corresponding lack of the satisfaction that they would have. And these passages parallel and echo each other. In verse 10, he basically says, the more you have, the more you want. The more you have, the less satisfied you are. In verse 11, the more you have, the more people come for it. This is true, isn't it? You have wealth. You gain more possessions. Maybe more property. Then you need people to manage that. You need maids. You need gardeners. You need nannies because you don't have time for your kids. You need accountants. You need brokers to invest. And one by one by one, your wealth gets leached away by other people. Family, which seems to extend in direct proportion to what you earn. New friends and old. Old friends appear out of nowhere. New friends are very excited to get to know you better. And let's not forget the tax man who's always going to take his share. And it's easy for us to think, isn't it? It's easy for us to fall into the trap and go, listen, I'd rather be a millionaire and have to give half of it away than not be a millionaire and not have to give any of it away. Right? And yet the principle remains the same that with wealth, and with an abundance of money comes a lot of other things. It's not that those things are necessarily bad or wrong, but there is a price that we pay that he'll continue to unpack. In the end of verse 11, he asks this question, what advantage do you even have? What advantage is there? What advantage does the owner of all of these things have but just to be able to see them? You just get to see them all Go away. He says the owner of the wealth becomes a spectator of its use, not a participant of its use. You own all of these things, but you're just a spectator in watching how they get used. In verse 12, he says the more you have, the more insomnia-producing worry there is. There's a sense in which you can't sleep. And it might be because you're eating the rich foods that cause indigestion, but I think there's other layers that are going on here. It's not just, it's not just he can't sleep because he is indigestion. There's a sleep uh, that is lost here because of the worry that is happening. Wealth produces systems that are flawed. While wealth can be amassed, there's this God-shaped lack of satisfaction in every human being that billions cannot fill. So if your wealth is attained through evil pursuits or ethical pursuits, it doesn't matter in the end. 
An obsession with money cannot be satisfied. It's just not fulfilling in and of itself. Satisfaction is sold separately. Let's look at the, uh, the next two paralleling um, paragraphs as well. These paragraphs are going to teach us that the possession of money must never be trusted. So an obsession with money can't be satisfied, and a possession of money can never be trusted. Look at verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, to, to, the, own, to the owner's harm. How, how is that? How is that? How, how are they harmed? Those riches were lost in a bad venture. They're suddenly lost. Money can be easily lost in the blink of an eye. We've seen that in our own lifetime, right? Bank failures, banks failing, along with your retirement plan, along with the investments that you had for your security, gone. Investments gone bad. Businesses go out of business. Uh, my brother and I were talking about this just yesterday. We were driving down somewhere and thinking about directions on how to get there. And um, he used to have a job that he relied, had to drive like a delivery driver for hospital equipment. And this is before kind of like smartphones and, and, and um, you know, uh, yeah, Google Maps and all that sort of stuff. You had to like look up directions. Um, anybody old enough to remember MapQuest? Remember MapQuest? So it was like, it would tell you the stuff, and then you just print off directions. So you're like walking around with like paper, um, like some kind of an idiot now, um, with directions on how to get, how to get somewhere. And um, imagine being the owner of MapQuest, because that was like a big deal back then. Like that guy was making serious bank, and within like year, like maybe, how long did MapQuest stick around? Three years maybe? Someone invents a smartphone, we don't need that anymore, Google Maps, you've got GPS, GPS, now everybody has GPS, and that business is gone, done. Remember pagers? Remember pagers? Like maybe if you like made your fortune in pagers and we're really banking on that to really take you into old age. Like that was here and gone. Someone else invents a smartphone. Like businesses just change. Things change. How you make your money changes. Recession. Might not even be your fault. And you lose all of the equity in your home. War. We've seen literally millions of, there were more people displaced from where they lived last year than any other year previously. Imagine having to just leave everything you know, your home, your business, because all of it got decimated. But he says, here's the thing, this person, their life gets decimated twice. Once in the attaining it, the obsession, all of the hard work, all of the labor, all of the striving, all of it took to acquire all of that, and then secondly is they lose it all. It's a double whammy. They work so hard to have it all lost. And then he, he goes on to say something that's even harder. And he's the father of a son but he has nothing to give him, nothing in his hand. These are parents. And it's not just them who get impacted. It's their kids. It's their families. And this happens all the time, where we put our hope, we put our trust <clears throat> in our material wealth. Um, in 1929, um, there was one of the famous stock market crashes and what made that stock market so crash is we kind of entered into the, the Great Depression um, era were the amount of suicides that happened during that time. People who just lost everything. With that decided there was no more reason to live. We saw this in Black Friday in the 1980s. I'm old enough to remember that happening. And we're all old enough to remember the 2008 global market crash, right? The financial crisis. And what marked all of those was the same sense of hopelessness. In 2008, the CFO Freddie Mac, which was the U.S. federal home loan mortgage company, hung himself after the market crashed. The CEO of Sheldon Good, a major real estate company, 
when the global housing market bubble finally popped, shot himself behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. French money manager, there's a French money manager for so many Europeans, royal families, leading families. He lost 1.4 billion of his clients' money in the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme. Slit his wrists and died in his Madison Avenue office. Danish executive of the HSBC Bank hung himself in his 500-pound-a-night penthouse hotel in London. Bear Stearns' executive lost his job and left from the 29th floor of his office. What made them feel so hopeless? What made them feel like life was, was, was too much to bear? It was because in a moment, everything that they had built their life upon, everything that they had trusted, everything that there was their identity and then their reputation, that their relationships were all built upon, was all gone. It wasn't that they just lost some money. It's that their, their life was so entangled up in that money that it felt like they had lost their life. And so they did. Took it themselves. And this is what the teacher, this is what he wants us to know, that hoarding wealth can be a devastating misery because it can be lost suddenly. It doesn't guarantee you anything. And it's, what, it's why you must never put your trust in it. But he gives us another reason in verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go. Naked as he came, he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hands. This also is a grievous evil. This, uh, this word grievous is like a sickening evil. It's, it's like nauseating. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? It's a cliche, but it's a biblical cliche. You can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. Money cannot go with you into the next life. Jesus illustrates this really well in Luke chapter 12 with the rich man, right? Do you remember the rich man? And he has so much wealth that he doesn't have enough room for it. And so what's his solution? Build bigger barns. I'll, 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 big build, I'll, I'll, I'll build a bigger empire to house my wealth. And Jesus calls him what? A fool. He calls him a fool because he had no idea that tonight your life will be required of you. And what about your wealth then? What about your wealth? What about the bigger barns? What about your global empire? At that moment, when we all have to stand before a living God, will matter. That's why he's a fool. It's not because he was wealthy that he was a fool. It's because he was a fool for thinking that somehow his wealth would actually matter in the end. Simon Dyson was an English golfer, and at the end of one of his most profitable tours, he was asked if he was afraid of anything. And his answer was this, death. Okay, you're like, okay, well, that's pretty good. We're all kind of probably afraid of death at some point. That's a standard answer. But it's why he was afraid of death. He says, I'm in a position now where I can pretty much do as I want. So dying wouldn't be good right now. Dying would be kind of a, a bummer. It'd be kind of inconvenient. Why? Because I've trained. I've practiced. Imagine all the hours of practice that's had to have been put in to get to be an elite golfer. To finally have one of, one of the, your most successful seasons, one of your most profitable seasons, and then go, now's not a good time to die. Why? Because all I would have worked for would be in vain. Now I actually get to live the life that I want. We all instinctively know that we can't take that life with us. He goes on then in verse 17. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much, in much vexation 
and sickness and anger. We shouldn't trust our money because it can be suddenly lost. It can disappear at death. And yet there's this other reason here that he says that hoarders suffer misery, and it's because wealth cannot guarantee enjoyment. He's experiencing a certain kind of hell even on earth. His, his, his days he eats in darkness. His heart is vexed. There's sickness and there's anger. Money doesn't solve any of these problems. You could actually say that money often multiplies these problems. Let's uh, jump ahead to, uh, chapter, to verse 1 of, of chapter 6. We'll look at the other section that parallels this one. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. That's all of us. This, uh, this phrase, lies heavily, could mean the severity, but it also means the frequency in which it happens. What, what the teacher says here is this happens all the time. This is common. This isn't just for a select few. In verse 2, a man to whom God gives wealth possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Now, is that not a description of the life that we would all say yes to? Like, yes, right now, sign me up for that. <laughs> but, but, but what he's saying is there's going to be some danger that comes with that that you need to be aware of. With the life that comes with wealth, possessions, and honor, and notice who gives that, God gives that, so much so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. And yet, and yet, God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a sickening, nauseating, evil is his perspective. Lack nothing that his heart desires is what we all want. And while money solves problems, it creates a whole new set of problems. One of those problems is that it doesn't guarantee you enjoyment. God doesn't grant enjoyment, but strangers instead get to enjoy his wealth. This is attainment without satisfaction. And notice that it's God is the reason for both. It's God who gives the wealth. It's God who gives uh, all of his heart's desires. And yet it is also God who gives and withholds the power to enjoy those things. Look at, verse, at the end of verse 2. Then he says, it's all vanity. This is hevel. It's temporary, vaporous things. There for a moment... And then gone. It's fleeting. Imagine having attained all your dreams. Whatever that good life is in your life, in your mind, whatever it is that you imagine, like, oh, imagine if that, that would be the life that I would just be, that would be amazing. For some of you, that might be like a quiet island with a hammock and a cocktail somewhere with no one ever talking to you. For some of you, that might be the spotlight and fame. But imagine whatever you've done to attain all of those things, finally getting there, <laughs> finally settling in to relax that life and then not being able to enjoy it. Not even being able to pass it on to your kids for their enjoyment. That would weigh heavily on you, wouldn't it? Look how he illustrates it. it gets, he gets pretty graphic in his illustration of this. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, just so you know, that, that is the height of like Jewish, uh, that's, that's how you know that you've been blessed at this time in a, in a Jew. Long life, many kids. That's, that's the good life for the Jews at this time, right? 
So he says, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, the good life, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, that's important, we'll come back to that in a second, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Now to be, to not have a burial at that time would have been a sign of God's curse on you. Not even to have someone that would care enough to give you a proper burial would have been seen as a curse. And he says, a stillborn child is better off than that person. I've held a stillborn child before, and we had a stillbirth. Not a a pleasant moment in time at all. And yet what he's driving at here, he says in verse 4, for the stillborn child comes in vanity, and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. No one knows the character of the child, no one knows its personality, no one knows what it might have been. Moreover, though, it has not been seen, it has not seen the son or known anything. So he doesn't know, this stillborn child, she doesn't know all the calamity that the world also offers. Yet it finds rest rather than the person who lived 100 years, had 100 kids, many years. Do not all go to one place. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. He says the child won't be known, but it won't know the misery of the world either. And so it will go to a place of rest. Shocking, shocking imagery, isn't it? To miscarry at birth is better than to miscarry in life. The stillborn never has to endure the pain or disappointment of the world. It never has to to, um, discover that its dreams and ambitions were a lie. And it's the first to find eternal rest. To have everything you've lusted for without the ability to truly enjoy it is such a misery, says the teacher, that it would have been better off to have not been born at all. My question for you and my question for me is, do I really believe that? Because part of me is like, I, I, I'm going to take my chances. Give me all the wealth. Give me all the honor. And let's take our chances at it. And yet the teacher is trying to help us reverse engineer our life. Learn these lessons now before you learn them the hard way, he says. And we, we know it's not true, right? If you don't believe that, and I don't at times, my heart doesn't at times, we just have to look around. Even recently, we've mentioned this before, but people that you would trade your lives with or the lifestyle that they had, celebrities recently, wasn't enough to sustain them wanting to live. They would agree Better not to have even lived than to have it all and not be able to enjoy it. And this is his point. Wealth, affluence cannot guarantee joy. You can't trust it to provide something that has no inherent power to do. Affluence has no inherent power to provide you any kind of lasting sense of joy, of worth, and identity. It is not capable of doing those things on its own. And yet, our whole culture, people spend billions, companies will spend billions to disciple you in the way to believe that that is not true. That all you need is that one more thing. That all you need is another couple zeros behind your your current bank statement. And the teacher is begging you this morning to not believe the hype. And he's saying don't believe it because I've been there. 
Remember, do you remember, if you, if you go back a few Sundays ago, do you remember when we described the wealth of Solomon? Do you remember all the food that he had to have every day? Why? Because he could, no one person could eat all that. It was for everybody else. And you can just imagine Solomon with all of this wealth watching everybody else enjoy it, and yet it not actually adding one bit of sense of worth to his life. Bring in all the things that are supposed to provide me joy, the things that only money can buy, and only the level of money that I have can buy. So that I said no, that I didn't say no to anything that my heart wanted. And yet at the end of the day, with all of that, he says, vanity. It's, it's meaningless. It's hevel. So seeking satisfaction and affluence is a dead-end street that if you go down far enough will actually lead you to the place to the preference of non-existence. This is why Paul, when he writes to the young apprentice Timothy, says this in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But, with, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. The things that will provide our basic needs, we'll be content with those things. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, Listen to what he says. He'll clarify in the next verse. It's not having money. It's not being rich that is a snare that plunges people into ruin and destruction. What does he say it is? It's the desire to be rich that is temptation. He clarifies in verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's this desire. It's this love. It's this lust. It's this craving for more. And he says it, it will lead you into despair and destruction. Why? Because those things can never be satisfied. You can never have enough. We have to be careful and guard our hearts. And we have to be careful to guard the hearts of our children as well. We can do this inadvertently, can't we? We want our kids to do well in school so they can succeed in life, so they can get a good job, so they can earn money, so that they can be secure, that you can be happy, that you can be satisfied. And we can, we can very subtly, I've done this myself, very subtly lead our kids to think that that is what will make them happy, and it won't. Because it won't make you happy. Yes, study hard and work hard, but do it for different reasons. Yes, get a good job and work hard, but do it for different reasons. And the, the side benefit of that is it might actually earn you a decent uh, wage. And you might actually uh, be able to have some earthly security. But don't put your hope in that either because it would be gone in a moment. We have to build deeper, further foundations into our own hearts, but into the lives of our kids that we don't arouse some kind of latent affluenza in them. And so this is what he's, he's been driving at. The more you have, the more you want. The more you have, the less you're satisfied. The more you have, the more people, including the government, will come after it. The more you have, the more you realize it does you no good. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. The more you have, the more you can hurt yourself by holding on to it. The more you have, the more you have to lose. The more you have, the more you will leave behind. Having it all is no guarantee of happiness or satisfaction. So an obsession with money can't be satisfied. We saw that in sections one and five. The possession of money can't be trusted in sections two and four. And so now in the last few moments that we have here, this is easy because this is the bullseye that's been driving. This is what everything's been driving toward. Number three then, contentment is God's gift to give irrespective of your wealth. <coughs> Rich or poor, whatever you have this morning, whatever spectrum um, you're on this morning, 
And, and just as an aside, we all tend to look up, don't we? So we all tend to look uh, to the people that have more than us, that, uh, the people that we desire to be like. None of us look down the ladder. Very rarely do we do that. We never look down the ladder and go, man, I'm really well off. I'm really rich. Our, our, the natural inclination of our heart under the sun is to look up and go, I don't have that yet. It's to discontentment, not to contentment. And this is, this is what he wants us to know. Contentment, wherever you are, rich or poor, is God's gift to give. Look at verses 18 to 20 in chapter 5 then. Behold, I have seen, I, uh, behold, I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one's toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given to him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and honor to enjoy them and to accept this lot and rejoice in this toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now, I don't know about you, but this is kind of surprising. Really, this is the answer? After all the warnings, after all the things that you said wealth would do that would destroy us, that these things uh, are not a place to find joy, these things are not a place to put your hope and trust in, these things are, are, are a dead-end road, you would expect him to say, so get rid of all your possessions, live a life of austerity, uh, just live a, a basic, minimalistic kind of life. But, he, but that's not what he says. Here the focus is on theology. God is only mentioned twice so far in these surrounding paragraphs. But here in this very small section of three verses, we find him mentioned twice as many times. And when we see that God is the determining focus of your worldview, everything changes regarding your enjoyment of life. You really want to enjoy life? Do you want to have a contentment in which your life can be enjoyed regardless of where you're at um, on, on the wealth spectrum? It all comes down to determining God is the focus of your worldview. Whether in lean times, verse 18, or wealth and prosperous, 19 to 20. We find where we, are, where we ended up last week, before this sovereign Lord, as dust-destined creatures, Accepting our lot in life is determined by God. And there's a real freedom in that. And so this is how he sums it up. Work hard. You should work hard. The Bible tells us that in many other passages, that we should actually be hardworking people, that we should be productive members of society, that we shouldn't be lazy. John hit on this last week, right? The folded hands, eh, you're just going to cannibalize yourself. Or the two hands trying to grasp at everything, no, one hand open, content with what God has given us, working hard, finding enjoyment in that work. Actually enjoy the work that God has given you to do. Eat, drink, and enjoy the simple pleasures of life. And we do that by acknowledging the sovereignty of the grace of God in all of that. Just as not a drop of rain falls unless God wills it, so not an ounce of joy flows through our hearts unless God gives it. And so we look to him as the source of our joy. We look to him as the source of our contentment, not to things. James uh, says this in, in chapter 117. He says, every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. It's a recognition of that, that all that I have to enjoy, even my work, even the ability and the skill and the knowledge that I have to be able to do my work is all from, from him. And this gives us the power to enjoy. But we forget this given our propensity towards idolatry. We worship the gifts rather than the giver of the gifts and it leads us to despair. We worship a comfortable life. We worship having our identity in the things uh, that we've built for ourselves, whether that be our career or the acumen or the things that have flown out of that career. 
We rely on those things to give us our comfort, those things to give us our ultimate pleasure, those things to give us our identity. These things become the the things that if lost, our life would crumble and fall apart. And that's the wrong way to live, the teacher says. That's a life of idolatry, worshiping the gifts that God has given us. Instead, we worship God and recognize these things as good gifts to be enjoyed and so thus enjoy them. But we enjoy them because our hope isn't placed on those things, because our satisfaction, we're not looking to those things to give us ultimate satisfaction. Hey, they're great and they're enjoy. We'll enjoy them. We had a, we had a, a great party here on Friday night. Um, decent food for those that got it until it ran out at the very end. Apologies for that. We'll do better next time. Um, we had great food, good drink, good enjoyment together, and we had a blast, and I enjoyed all of it. But those things inherently on their own, that enjoyment ends. It's not lasting. It's not satisfying. What actually added enjoyment to that was all of us that were there at that party had the same vision of life with God at the center of that. He's the one who gives you the ability to enjoy money, to enjoy your possessions, to enjoy your family, your work, sex, any other good gift that comes from God. It's when we disconnect him from those things, a life under the sun, as it were, that they become fleeting and hevel. We take gifts and we treat them as gods. We do this all the time. We do it with money, hoping that it gives us security, peace, joy, identity, and it never does. We do it with things like alcohol, relying on it for our relaxation, relying on it to make us happy and enjoyment, and then you sober up and you're right back to where you began. Instead of enjoying these things in moderation, knowing that they are gifts from God, knowing that satisfaction is sold separately. And so we live open-handedly, admitting our anxiety, confessing our idolatry, asking the Lord to give us more satisfaction in the life that he has given you, not looking to other people's lives and being dissatisfied with the one he's given you. Here's the bottom line as we close. You cannot be ambitious for affluence and love Jesus at the same time. And if you think that's a bit harsh, these are the words of Jesus in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters, for either, he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Plain and simple, from the words of Jesus. You can have money. You can have lots of money. But you can't serve that. You can't live for that. You can't put, put all your hope and trust and identity, uh, life built on those things and serve God. Those things are mutually exclusive to one another. Wealth and Jesus are not exclusive, mutually exclusive. It just makes it really hard. That's why wealthy people struggle like a camel through the eye of a needle. But it's not impossible It's living for, it's the obsession of, it's the building a life upon these things that become mutually exclusive to serving God. Here's the thing, your money always wants to master you. We think we can master our money, it's always, it's usually the other way around. And the more of it you have, the more tempting it is for it to master you. Closing closing words. Paul goes on in in that passage in 1 Timothy to give Timothy this advice then for wealthy people. And again, all of us are wealthy. We're all wealthy. Like globally, we're in like the top 5%. This is what he says. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Don't be proud. We're not proudful. We're We're not pride people because of what we have. Look at all that I have. In order to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. This is it, right? It's the same. This is the positive of what Ecclesiastes put in the negative. They are to do good. They are to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This isn't life. 
All of your possessions and money is in life. So if you have a lot of it, be generous with it. Why? So that it doesn't master you, so that you can take hold of what is truly life. Christ himself. Christ himself. And so we are to be a generous people. We are to be rich in good works. We are to be ready to share, storing up our, for ourselves a real treasure that you can take with you into heaven. <laughs> Treasures of good works. We've lived a life showing we have open-handed lives, that we're not mastered by our money, that God is our master, and so we can be generous with these things. We're not worried if we lose them. We don't have to hoard them up to the detriment of ourselves and other people. We can be generous. We can have people into our house. Well, but that means it'll get messed up and we'll have to clean it. Yeah, but that's okay because your house isn't, it's just a house. It's not your identity. It's not the be all end all. God's given it to you as a tool. Like everything else. To be rich in good works. To be generous. To be ready to share. So that you may take hold of what is truly life. Do you have affluenza this morning? Are you suffering from a, a case of it? And remember these things. An obsession with money can't be satisfied. The possession of money can't be trusted. And the contentment is God's gift to give, irrespective of where you see yourself on a wealth scale. <laughs> Anxiety is not a call... Um, for us to put our hope in things that are fleeting and things that are solid. Christianity is not a call to mandatory poverty. It doesn't want to destroy uh, your wealth necessarily. What it does want to destroy is the, pl is the place in which money is the God of your heart. But to help you see that money is a blessing from God who is to be most valued, most treasured above all. Jesus is this greatest example of being satisfied with the lot that God gave him. He's obedient to the, to the Father, even to death on a cross. Our salvation is the testimony of the ultimate embodiment of this. That Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that you and I could be rich. That he lost everything, including his life, so that you and I might gain everything. Imagine if Jesus came and put all of his hope in his own life, in his own, what he could attain, what he could gather. He would have lost his life just like you and I. But he didn't. He obeys the Father. He doesn't cling to his own life. He gives it up, takes, takes on the form of a servant so that you and I might become rich, that you and I might be adopted into the, to the king's palace. Here we get this beautiful picture of life above the sun, beyond the sun, one connected to Jesus. And like Jesus, this is how we should be. We sing this song, and I'll close with these words of this uh, famous, famous hymn. Um, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. I want to just show you the last painting um, here. This is a close-up of the painting that we saw before. And on this painting, um, this is the mirror that sat on the table. And if you can see, there's a reflection in this mirror of a man, and he's holding a Bible. And um, this is the artist himself. Um, this is Massis. And he paints himself into this little tiny reflection on this mirror as a reminder. And you can see... He's reaching out to cling on to the frame of the window, which is in the shape of a cross. This tiny little detail on this painting to remind himself to cling to the cross of Jesus, to stay in his word and not be distracted by all that the world might give us that would pull our hearts away. May that be us this morning as we come to the table. May we see Jesus once again in the bread and the wine his body and blood broken and shed for us as someone who lived a life 
so generously that he gave it away so that others might become rich, that others might find their life. And then we go out and be and, um, like him uh, through the power of the Spirit this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your riches to us, your kindness, your generosity to us. May we um, be more and more like that. Would you disentangle our uh, affections of our heart from things that are temporary, from things that are heavy and fleeting, that don't last, that make promises to us that they never fulfill? May we, um, like Messias, cling to the cross. May we be people in your word, looking to the promises that you have given us, that you have fulfilled to us um, all in Jesus. That all your promises are yes and amen. And all the promises of the world are lies that get broken. Remind us again as we come to the table of your goodness. May it be ever satisfying for us.